Good day, everyone, and welcome to today's America at a Crossroads Needs Direction for Energy Policy. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. You, later, you will have the opportunity to ask questions during the question and answer session. You may register to ask a question at any time by pressing the star and one on your touchtone phone. You may withdraw yourself from the queue by pressing the pound key. Please note this call may be recorded. I'll be standing by should you need any assistance. The information and views conveyed by Energy Intelligence on this call shall not be considered as advice, recommendation, representation, or endorsement, and should not be relied on in connection with any business or investment decision. Any use of such information by any person or organization is at such person's or organization's sole risk. It is now my pleasure to turn the conference over to Mr. Jim Washer. Please go ahead, sir. Thank you. Hello and welcome to today's Energy Intelligence Virtual Roundtable. My name is Jim Washer. I'm Energy Intelligence's London Bureau Chief, and it's my pleasure to be your host for today's discussion, America at a Crossroads, New Directions for Energy Policy. Well, it has been quite a week, and I think many of us are still in shock and trying to get our heads around the outcome of last week's US election. Donald Trump's victory has wrong-footed the pundits and is going to have huge implications for the global economy, the geopolitics, and of course, for the American people. It also raises a lot of questions over how he will govern and over whether the extreme rhetoric of his campaign will be translated unfiltered into policy or whether he will take a more moderate Trump-light approach. Today, we're going to try and sketch out what the future might hold in terms of US energy and foreign policy under President Trump. And to do that, I'm joined by our two Washington insiders, our chief domestic policy correspondent, Elizabeth McGowan, and our chief foreign policy correspondent and deputy bureau chief in DC, Emily Meredith. Elizabeth, Emily, good morning, and thank you for joining us. Morning. Good morning. Now, we've got a lot to get through in the next 30, 40 minutes, so let's get straight down to the business. And Emily, if I can start with you and what is probably the most obvious question. What, if anything, do we understand about Trump's possible energy policy agenda from the statements and speeches he's made so far? Yeah, um, thanks, Tim. So, I mean, what we know sort of fundamentally is that he represents a complete shift from the climate change concern-driven energy policy of Barack Obama and, indeed, the policy that Hillary Clinton had sought to pursue as well on energy issues. Um, now, when Trump speaks about energy, he's often speaking about it as, a, as adding fuel to the economy, um, both in revenues and then also as a driver of jobs. Um, now, in terms of what that, you know, what that translates to and, and what we'll see in terms of policy maneuvers, um, you know, he talks about wanting to see a surge in fossil fuel jobs, including coal jobs. Um, he wants to lift government restrictions on production. And those restrictions, they typically, you know, look at, they typically fall into two categories. One is an actual, you know, restriction on producing, um, producing from a certain area, and often that will be, you know, in this area of federal land, this, you know, park, this area that's set aside, you can't, you can't produce coal, oil, or natural gas. Um, and Obama has sought to add additional areas into that category throughout his administration. Um, the second category of restrictions are more along the lines of these regulations that we've been hearing a lot of, or a lot, um, a lot on from the Obama administration, and that is more along the lines of um, 
restrictions on methane emissions from oil and gas processing facilities, um, restrictions on, you know, how much of certain greenhouse gases or um, other pollutants can come out of coal plants. I mean, these are very, like, these very work-a-day um, restrictions. Um, so I think that's, that sort of is the, the primary um, frame that we're going to be seeing Trump act in. Okay. Elizabeth, if I can turn to you, how realistic are, are these energy goals? What energy policy problems is a Trump presidency likely to encounter, and how helpful or obstructive do you think he's going to find Congress? Okay, I guess I'll, I'll start out with your first point on um, these realistic, how realistic are these, these goals, which seem very nebulous because there isn't much meat attached to the bone, so to speak. So when he talks about reviving coal, that um, doesn't seem to be a, a very good option at this point. We have a transition to natural gas. It's well underway, and um, it wasn't. It, it was a it was a price thing and a volume thing, and so the the coal doesn't. It just doesn't seem to be an option um, right now. So also we do have a glut of oil and natural gas in this country right now, we have gone through enormous rounds of layoffs that there's a little bit of a tick upward now on the hiring, but it's still, um, that industry still feels a, a shock from their success and having to, to lay people off because they couldn't move their product. So when he talks about attaching, you know, jobs to infrastructure projects, you know, pipelines, export terminals, who knows, it all sounds good, but per usual, the devil is in the details of this. So I'm going to move on to Congress, and we know that we can, one assumption we can make pretty soundly is that this Congress is going to be more welcoming than Obama, uh, than the type of Congress Obama had when he was battling a Republican majority. Um, so the Republicans seem very united right now, and they do have a little less of a majority in both the House of Representatives and the Senate, but they still have a majority. However, there is this tension between Trump and his followers and the more traditional arm of the Republican Party, which we witnessed during the campaign with people withholding support for him or being very coy about how they were supporting him. And really it's almost impossible to predict how those fractures, and there are fractures, and they are going to erupt somehow, but we don't know how. And I guess that one analyst to me had a great summary of a Trump administration and in a nutshell what it means for the oil and gas industry just looking at policy. One, he said it's generally positive for fossil fuel extraction, midstream infrastructure, and downstream processing, but it would be disruptive for climate policy and generally neutral for renewables, power, and storage. And I'll um, wrap up there. Okay, so those are some of the sort of market realities he may be facing and, and the issues in Congress. I mean, just to follow up on your comments there, and this is obviously an important consideration for most people listening on this call, what do you think the U.S. oil industry is going to be looking for uh, from a Trump presidency? 
Well, one of the agenda toppers that they've made very clear is to either get rid of or vastly reinvent our renewable fuel standard, which was passed as part of an energy bill in 2005 because, lo and behold, we thought we were running low on our own oil and we wanted to try to get a bigger bang for the buck on it and also reduce the greenhouse gas emissions. So it requires a certain amount of ethanol and other biofuels to be mixed into this transportation fuel supply. Um, the industry just vehemently opposes this thing. They think it's outdated and it needs to be reinvented. Now, Trump has actually come out in favor of the RFS, but he's, he's had some wobbling on this. I'm thinking this is probably something they can discuss and at least maybe reinvent this. Um, there's also sort of an ancillary issue attached to that, which is that Obama has is intent on um, raising the fuel economy standards, and he wants to get them up to 54.5 miles per gallon by 2025. There's a review process going on, and that um, the, the review process was built into the regulation. That is something that could tip either way. So the oil industry is paying very close attention to that, um, whether how that ends up going, whether they increase it beyond 54 and a half or lower it, is that's going to be decided uh, by the Trump administration. So these other issues that I'm going to run through, industry is they have this they have this sort of mantra. They call it overreach, and they say that the Obama administration has issued 145 basically regulations and sort of connected edicts that have come out of his, his administration. And the thing is, they're not opposed to regulations, but they, te they say, well, we want them to be common sense regulations. They, they don't want them to be so expensive and invasive, I guess. And it, it's a little hard to find out exactly what that means. But one example is that this week, um, the industry, is vow as, as the Republicans, are vowing to fight back on a final rule that the Interior Department issued under its, um, its Bureau of Land Management, and they are regulating the venting and flaring of methane from the oil and gas sector. Obviously, that only applies to public lands because that's all they can regulate. But the, Geo the Republican Party has vowed to overturn this. So, and that goes in tandem with, they say that these Obama rules are just too, there's too much duplication. So, in, with regards to methane, the Environmental Protection Agency is in the midst of crafting a rule that would regu regulate the fugitive emissions of methane from existing oil and gas infrastructure, and that, that has the industry very nervous. Um, the thing is that the EPA is not likely to be done with that rule before Obama leaves office because they really just started it. It's new for them. It's not carbon and it's not power plants. It's a whole new area and they, they need to take their time with it. He's, they're probably not going to release it before they leave. And I can tell you Trump was not likely to finish a rule like that because it is not at all appealing to industry to have that breathing down their neck. So, you know, I'll go back a little bit. Um, they want access to, to as much public land as possible. 
you know, even when we have this glut right now after the shale boom, they just want it to be accessible. They, they want to know it's there and not be locked off of it. Um, we're gonna, I'm going to take a look at this, this offshore also because they, they're not happy at all. When Obama came out with the latest iteration of the five-year offshore plan, which is built into regulation, it's a cyclical thing, he removed the Atlantic from this as a possibility for the 2017 to 2022 offshore drilling plan. Industry does not like that. They will have trouble getting that back in. It, it might be near to impossible until 2022, but he's going to come out with the final iteration of the plan. If the Arctic is removed from that, then they will really be on fire, and that will cause some kind of, I don't know what, but they are, I, I don't think he's going to take it out, but if he does, there will be pushback. Now, it's not just these rules, you know, methane, this kind of stuff. There are also these, these things that the Obama administration has done. And, for instance, it requires all branches of the federal government to review any project um, under the National Environmental Protection Act, which you probably know as NEPA, and as well as looking at the social cost of carbon and methane. Those have to be built into every project in industry. That's, they see it as another onus. that They have to do this figuring, and, and to get a project approved, it has to go through a, yet another um, hoop, and they are not happy. However, so he, Trump you know, talked about in his advisors, oh, we're going we're gonna to turn over this agency. We're going to roll back all these rules and regulations. So uh, to, to oversimplify, it's not as easy as waving a magic wand to change these rules. Um, however, as I mentioned, rules that are not yet finished will have trouble advancing under him. However, doing a 180 on regulations, it makes a great sound bite. However, this is complicated because there are lots of checks and balances built into these regulations for these reasons, um, especially one such as the Clean Power Plan that's tied up in court. And the fate of many of these rules will be played out in court because the environmental groups will be suing. There will be countersuits. It will you know, it could go on, if he's in office for four years, it could be in court that long. Okay. Um, some interesting stuff there, Elizabeth. I mean, it's interesting, you know, you touched on some aspects of um, Obama's, Obama's green energy agenda versus in, in areas such as fuel economy. And Emily, if I can just ask you more broadly about what we expect in terms of um, policy developments in this area. Um, he's talked about uh, deregulation, I mean, should we expect that to uh, extend to things like the abolition of the EPA? How easy is a, a Trump administration going to find it to pull out, for example, of the, of the UN Paris Climate Accord? Yeah, um, so I think that, um, you know, we can definitely expect all of what Elizabeth said, that these regulatory, um, these regulations that are not set in stone just basically don't go forward. Um, another thing that industry had sort of been looking at was the Securities and Exchange Commission um, request to include climate risk disclosure, um, and that was an issue that was really upcoming and was going to be something for the Clinton administration to deal with, and I don't think we're going to see that. Um, now, he has, as you mentioned and talked about, abolishing the EPA or turning it into some kind of you know, commission so that it's a mix of political appointees, and we've We've heard people say that, you know, a commission would essentially lose all regulatory teeth, but 
you know, the U.S. regulates its nuclear power plants, um, its commodities and futures trading, the stock exchange all through commissions. So it's, it's not clear to me that that is necessarily true, even if the EPA were to be, um, I don't want to say gutted. It's already been, you know, there are a lot of funding issues already for the EPA so, um, because of the Republican congressional control. Um, but uh, even if it were to be sort of changed in, in structure, um, or even if the Trump administration were to look at changing it in structure, that's going to be a real fight with the Democrats in Congress. And keep in mind that most legislation still requires this 60-vote supermajority, um, and the Republicans have 51. So, so we're not, I mean, 52, excuse me, so we're not going to see, um, we're not really going to see a wholesale slaughter of all environmental regulation. And, and, you know, in fact, Trump has said, I want, I want the EPA to regulate water and air. Um, it's sort of up for interpretation what that means um, versus how Obama has approached that. But, but you know, it, it is important to keep that in mind. Um, in terms of, you know, the COP21 accord, he can certainly pull out of the Paris Agreement. Um, there are a few ways he can do that. One is to pull out of the agreement itself. That's going to require a four-year waiting period. The other is to simply, you know, maybe to put that four-year waiting period, put, put the, um, the members on notice and, and sit there for that four-year waiting period, but essentially do absolutely nothing to move the U.S. along the path that it committed to moving along. Um, and he can also do that even if he doesn't say he's going to formally pull out. And then the other path is a bit different, and it is for him to pull out of the um, UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And that is that framework is um, that was agreed to in the 90s. So the sort of initial wait period is over. That only takes a one-year wait period. Now there are people I've talked to on both sides of this issue who say, you know, yes, he can definitely do this and legally, but there are diplomatic reasons why he. Maybe wouldn't. I mean, um, you know, there's a reason to think that in order to make nice with, you know, for example, European allies, you would want to just say, okay, look, you know what my stance is, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay in. I'm not gonna blow it up, um, hoping that it'll pay dividends somewhere else. Um, so, you know, it's it's not clear. There's sort of arguments on both sides, but yeah, he can certainly he can certainly pull out of that if he if he would like. Okay. So Elizabeth, listening to these, um, the, the, the sort of the agenda that's taking shape here for a sort of the Trump administration. If you're part of the environmental movement and they've enjoyed a lot of successes, it seems to me blocking Keystone XL, and they're also, um, you know, opposed to this Dakota Access Pipeline. What's their response going to be to this? How are they going to act in the face of some of the things that the Trump administration may be planning? Well, the first thing I think they they really acted with their feet just yesterday. Um, the Army Corps has delayed a, an easement that um, Energy Transfer Partners needs to, to build the last segment. It's an underwater segment of the Dakota Access, which is an oil pipeline through four states, starting in North Dakota, ending in Illinois. And they, because the Army Corps has basically listened to, the, to Obama's advice and said, all right, you need to review this, you need to take more time, and they've done that. So... These people went out and marched nationwide, and um, this has maybe become sort of their new 
keystone. I mean, it's, it's a visible, um, you have the Native American element. It's, it's caused quite a commotion, and um, so that will be interesting to watch. Um, now, listening to the Enviro's um, talk, I mean, the word that went out right after the election in every conversation and every news release was the election of Trump was a disaster. That was the, the word. Um, but I, I think that this may bode the executive director of 350 Action, which is a key part of the Keep It in the Ground movement, summed up the movement's resolve by saying it this way, we must channel our anger and fear into hope and resolve. Now is the time to take a deep breath and fight like never before, which I thought was interesting. They, the, the groups, they have really vowed to redouble their efforts um, Many kind of hearkened back to the election of George W. Bush, with, you know, George Bush, Bush number two, in the year 2000, and um, they, the things, the, how they tackled things, and they have certainly become more sophisticated and strategic since then. So um, they are not taking cover anywhere. They are, um, I guess, raring to go and continue. Their, what they have laid out for themselves. Okay. Um, now, if we can turn uh, for a moment to foreign policy. Um, the U.S. has had difficult relations in recent years with two leading oil and gas exporters, Russia and Iran. The Trump presidency has promised to improve ties with Iran, but possibly tighten sanctions, reimpose sanctions on Iran. So, Emily, if I can ask you for your thoughts, how do we expect U.S. relations with these countries to evolve how do we think that could affect oil and gas markets? Sure. Um, so let's, I mean, let's tackle Iran first. And the most obvious way of doing that is to start with the Iran, the, um, the international agreement over Iran's nuclear program. Um, Trump has been very, very critical of the Iran deal, which, as most people know, is what loosened both U.S. but more, perhaps more importantly, um, international sanctions on Iran's economy, which has enabled some of these discussions. Um, you know, more recently we've seen Total going in and talking about going in in a big way um, to an Iranian gas project. And so, you know, this has happened. Trump has called the deal disastrous, but he's also said that U.S. companies should be able to benefit. So it's very unclear right now, you know, what his criticism of the deal as a disaster one means. We're already starting to see Republicans who are critics of the deal and come, uh, come at it from a place of, you know, it wasn't enough to say that the nuclear program was going to be under international inspection and, you know, Iran was giving up the vast majority of its centrifuges and wasn't going to be researching on new centrifuges for several years. I mean, they say that wasn't enough. Iran's ballistic missile activity is unacceptable. Iran's funding for certain groups in the region is unacceptable. And those things need to also stop before we give Iran any economic breaks, right? So, it, but, but it's not clear so far that Trump himself takes that position. So what we're seeing is um, Kelly Ayotte, who lost her seat, but is going to be introducing legislation that reimposes sanctions based on those activities. Um, and Lindsey Graham, who's from South Carolina and a Republican and sort of a traditional national security hawk, said last night that if that effort fails, he's going to reintroduce it in the new year. Um, just last night, the House of Representatives passed a continuation of the Iran Sanctions Act. 
that really doesn't do too much. Um, it, it, because the sanctions that were listed are executive, this is basically a messaging bill. Um, but it is a little bit of a, I mean, it's, it's a, not a nice message if you're sitting in Tehran, obviously. Um, so basically, you know, I think it's, it's really up for debate where things are going with Iran. And then the other element is that, you know, you heard Trump in one of the debates say that there's a reason for talking to Assad and that Assad is Iran and Iran is Russia and Russia is Iran. I mean, this very sort of convoluted slate of connections, but, but a recognition that, that, you know, maybe we need to be open to working with Tehran on that. So, I mean, really, you could probably make a strong argument on either, either side um, in terms of how things go in Iran. Now, on Russia, obviously, we've seen um, a much warmer attitude towards Moscow than what we have seen out of, you know, sort of Washington's foreign policy set in the last couple of years. Um, you know, he's made some comments that are a real departure from that policy, that he would consider relaxing U.S. sanctions on Russia um, for its activities in eastern Ukraine. Um, his warmer attitude towards Moscow is really interesting, um, and as it's been explained to me, it's rooted in this belief that if the U.S. does face a fundamental international challenge, it's going to come from China, and that you don't want Russia and China to be on the same side, and so you want to keep Russia on side. Um, I mean, some people would say that's being overly generous. I, don't, I personally don't know. But there is a real split, and this I think is important, with the Republican Party on whether or not you should um, take a tough line. The sort of Republican national security set has been very aggressive um, in its language towards Russia. And last night, again, Lindsey Graham, you know, he brought reporters together to he, – he did not support Trump. Um, and he said, listen, I'm going to continue to be a hard ass, and I'm not going to let this go anywhere. Um, so what we are seeing is Republicans positioning to keep this hard line on Russia on. Um, and it'll be really interesting. And I think it'll also be really interesting because we have heard Trump express what I think, I think it's fair to say sounds like a real mercantilist approach to foreign policy. Um, on energy issues in particular, but on other in other areas as well. And, you know, the U.S. LNG sector is going to be looking for markets going forward, um, looking for markets in Europe, and that's going to bring the U.S., and we already are, in some competition with um, Russian pipe gas into Europe. And so if you are in charge of a country and you really think, like, there should be this tit for tat, or I, what my real job is to do is to sell U.S. stuff overseas, I mean, then that does present a complication. So, um, again, you know, I'm sorry to be so wishy-washy, but this is, uh, you know, up in the air, you can make an argument on both sides here. Okay. Um, thanks, uh, Emily. I mean, you mentioned their LNG exports, which brings me on to the next question, which is about the other potential dimension here internationally from some of the new policies Trump may be producing, and he, he, he's talked about his America First approach, and I wondered if I can ask um, Elizabeth this, how we think that could impact U.S. involvement with international oil and gas markets. I mean, should we anticipate any impact on, for example, U.S. crude exports or product exports or exports of LNG? Yeah, and I, I, I guess I wish I could make a, uh, a prediction one way or the other, but... Um in discussing this, it's it's once again it's this 
this classic case of the of the two Trumps, and sort of Emily, you know, alluded to that in her other answer, is that he's the he's a guy who loves to get up and say, you know, the the markets they're beautiful and we should support them and we love them, and so that that all sounds well well and good. And then we have this other Trump that is saying, well, we don't need to buy Saudi oil. We're you know we're going to harvest our own and have our own. And but when he says things like that, and he also raises questions about the U.S. and protecting the Strait of Hormuz, and he he raises these these alarms internationally, and it it people don't know what to think, and so you, you sit there and think, well, is this just a negotiating position on his part to mix things up and then swoop in with some sort of an answer when he? Um, you know, is the president and can do that? Well, we just don't know. So, but we one thing we do know that things will likely not go well internationally and export-wise if we get this more bombastic Trump. So, and I I wanted to give Emily a chance to comment further on trade here if she wants to because she might have some additional insights. Yeah, I would just say that, I mean, basically to reiterate what Elizabeth said, you know, in North America there's a lot of trade in oil, gas, and electricity um, between the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. We've heard Trump rail against NAFTA and say it needs to be renegotiated day one. That obviously, you know, raises a lot of questions about all kinds of cross-border trade, including energy issues. But, again, we don't know if this is a negotiating position. Um, so there's there's that. And then the other thing I would mention, Jim, is is that um, it's, it's a little bit further away from our typical area of focus, but um, we just ran a story this morning looking at how the GOP tax plan poses, could end up implementing a tax on crude oil imports because of the structural shift. So you know, Trump and Paul Ryan, it looks like who's going to be the Speaker of the House, are both dedicated to doing this um, tax reform overhaul, and that will probably have to go hand-in-hand hand with this big infrastructure spending thing that they want to tackle, um, the discussions of it at least, even if it doesn't end up succeeding. And so, you know, there are other little issues that are in these other policy areas that we need to watch out for. Okay. Um, I think at this point we may be ready to start to take some questions from those listening in. At this time, if you'd like to ask a question, please press the star in one on your touchtone telephone. You may withdraw your question at any time by pressing the pound key. Once again, to ask a question, please press the star in one on your touchtone phone, and we can pause a few moments to allow any questions to queue. Okay, well, while we're just waiting uh, to see if any questions emerge, um, you mentioned there at the end, Emily, uh, this question of taxation. Um, I mean, looking at this broadly, I mean, what, what can we expect a Trump White House to be proposing in terms of taxes for the energy sector? And I suppose I'm thinking here not just in terms of corporate taxes for oil and gas, uh, but also the, the question of sort of tax incentives for green energy that have been, been pushed by Obama. Yeah, so... So the so both Paul Ryan and um, and the House GOP they're leading a tax reform effort on the congressional side, and President Elect Trump have talked about tax reform being a priority. The um, House GOP blueprint is sort of the most fleshed out that we've seen. You know, both are 
both are advocating for lower corporate tax rates and a flatter tax, um, a, you know, system of flatter, flatter taxation, fewer income brackets for individuals and families. But, you know, on the corporate side, I think it's really worth taking a good look at um, the House GOP plan because it is so fleshed out. And that's essentially a structural shift from the current U.S. income-based um, taxation system to where companies are, are taxed on their income to one of consumption and cash flows. And so it, it would be very familiar to somebody who's studied tax policy um, in a lot of European countries where, you know, you've got, you pay taxes on imports, but for goods that are exported, you get to um, take a deduction. And so that's why we would end up seeing a tax on crude oil imports. It's not unique to crude. Um, it would probably be for any raw materials. I mean, the oil guys who are in Washington aren't the other. Aren't, it's definitely not the only industry that is worried about, you know, having their manufacturing inputs, which have traditionally been exempt, um, taxed. So I think that, that that's a really big structural shift, obviously the corporate tax rate is going to then be lowered. Um, and then the other, you know, the issue you brought up, Jim, about uh, renewable taxes, tax incentives. Um, you know, last year at, in exchange, the, the deal that was done to get the ban on U.S. crude oil exports um, lifted was that the White House wanted these a five-year extension of tax incentives for solar and wind. Um, those have been coming up for renewal every year. It was always a fight. It was always something, you know, that sort of divided um, along party lines, even though there's actually support on both sides um, of the aisle for these because, you know, there is like a manufacturing and jobs reason why if you're a Republican, you, you, want, you want these to go forward. So um, that five-year extension is in place. Now, because they're talking about overhauling the entire tax code, you can see an, an argument where you would say, like, listen, I'm writing this tax bill, and we're talking about changing the entire system, so any tax incentives that exist, we also are going to want to take a look at, and we're going to want to repeal. The other, the other way that this can happen is, is you look at those tax incentives, and you say, look, they sunset after five years. And so they're going away anyway, and this is like an important manufacturing industry that we're interested in seeing um, succeed in, on a certain level. And so, like, let's just leave those alone, and also it's not worth the fight. Um, so anyway, again, sorry to be sort of evasive, but as yet to be seen in how, in how that plays out. Okay. Um, let's just check again and see if we have any questions coming in from our audience. We do have a question from Judith Dwarkin of RS Energy Group. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Hi. Good morning, and thank you for your commentary. I have a question that may be a bit out of your respective bailiwicks, but I'll ask it anyway. And the question is, what, if anything, do you think Trump's election may have um, in terms of influence on the discussion or the outcome of the upcoming OPEC meeting at the end of this month, and secondly, and more broadly, on Saudi Arabia's strategy with respect to its intended pace of monetizing its reserves? Um, yeah, I can handle that a little bit. I mean, I think um, 
you know, I'm sure you saw the comments yesterday from the Saudi oil minister saying Trump needs to really consider these, um, if you're being generous, trade skeptic ideas and talking about restricting importing Saudi crude. Um, you know, there's, in terms of how that affects OPEC, I neither of us cover OPEC, um, honestly, but the, you know, this negative positioning towards um, OPEC heavyweight, Saudi Arabia, is a, is important to take note of, and also important to take note of are um, how they might see these emerging policies as affecting the U.S. shale issues. I mean, what I have heard, and this is not from Saudis and OPEC, but from people in the refining sector, is that if you, if you talk about um, a situation in which crude imports are taxed in the U.S., right, you are going to have a scenario in which there is U.S. shale production that can come online. Um, there's, there's more of it that can come online because the price that refiners have to pay for international crude is higher, and so, so you make yep. some U.S. shale production more, um, more economic. Um, I don't know if that throws open more questions about, you know, U.S. shale production, whether or not you're going to end up just feeding this glut again. I mean, this is really, you know, we're getting into sort of really theoretical discussions here, but um, I think that's important to keep in mind. I mean, if Trump really is able to make the U.S. Um, energy independent or oil independent in six years, <laughs> then um, then I can think you'd certainly expect some different um Different way of acting on the on the Saudi side, um, but again, for all of the reasons Elizabeth talked about, it's it's really an open question about the degree to which U.S. Uh, oil and gas policy can affect um, you know production on a on a on a wide scale. Thanks, uh, Emily. I mean, Judith, I can just follow up with a couple of general comments maybe on, uh, with respect to OPEC, and these are all just really kind of very obvious or, or basic kind of observations. Um, I mean, the, the first thing, I suppose, is that they will be looking at the sort of uncertainty that Trump's election creates for the global economy and what his kind of America first and his potential sort of abrogation of trade deals and... Um, you know, protectionism might mean, and it could be, you know, very bad news for the global economy, and that obviously has a read across for oil demand, which is therefore, you know, negative news for oil producers and exporters, you know, in addition to any sort of trade barriers that are put up actually uh, for, for reaching the U.S. market, and that's one thing. The other thing, I guess, is just that, you know, that obviously oil exporters uh, sell their oil in dollars, and the dollar uh, is likely to be in for a slightly more volatile ride um, as a result of this election, again, just connected to the uncertainty it creates the global economy. And that, you know, a weaker dollar typically means a higher oil price, so that is something they will be very concerned about as well. Um, in the more immediate term, you know, vis-a-vis -vis this meeting coming up in a few weeks' time, I mean, it's, I, I'm, I'm not sure it has um, an enormous impact. I mean, OPEC seems to be having enough trouble sort of getting, uh, you know, put, following through on this deal tentatively agreed in Algiers, you know, never mind sort of additional, um, you know, sort of changes in the global economy. True enough. Thank you. Okay. Um, any other questions from our audience? We have no other questions at this time, but as a reminder, if you would like to ask a question, please press the star and one on your touchtone phone, and we can pause another few moments to allow any questions to queue. Just very quickly, um, Emily and Elizabeth, just while we're waiting, um, 
I, just for those who are a bit less familiar with, with certain aspects of the sort of US political scene, we, we were at the stage now where there's some appointments being talked about for Trump's team. I mean, what, what are the key jobs and appointments to look out for um, in terms of sort of impact on, on the energy sector? Well, I, I think that um, people need to be paying attention to the key regulators for oil and gas. And one, the interior has... Mainly, it's the um, Bureau of Land Management that, and there also have these um, these offshore agencies also, and those that matters because, I mean, I know the oil and gas people really panicked when the Obama administration way back early this year announced a, a pause on the federal coal mining and the access there, and that made the oil and gas people flinch because they thought, oh, no, we're next. And, and they haven't been next, but they feel they still feel squeezed. And I kind of went off on a tangent there. But the other is the Environmental Protection Agency because they might not be dictating where you drill, but they do say how you drill. And they are they're, they're, they're tasked with protecting human health, so they need to look at, you know, the methane, ozone, all of those emissions, and those are all things that have industry on edge. So I would say those two, and I'm going to let Emily comment on the Department of Energy. Okay. That's a, another factor just because of some of the um, – some of what they do on, on energy. Yeah, the, I mean, U.S. politics are convoluted in a number of ways, but one is um, understanding that the U.S. energy secretary is not an energy secretary in the way that he, you know, the same position is in other countries. So about half of his remit is um, handling the U.S. nuclear weapons fleet, um, which, you know, is... Probably pretty clear if you look at the U.S. own appointments um, or the uh, President Obama's appointments for the last couple of years. Um, but he he can ha he handles the sort of international trade aspects of it, um, but he does not or she, uh, depending, does not handle um, the drilling policy issues. So again, like Elizabeth said, you're going to really want to look at the EPA and Department of Interior. Okay. Well, instance, um, DOE, just, just as an aside, the Department of Energy is now has approved, um, which is going to, which is in a, a piece of legislation, which is still um, hanging there. But DOE did say, all right, we can speed up this um, this LNG export. That's something that DOE could intervene on because they had been asked by industry and legislators to do so. So they can they can have an impact there, but it's um, it's not. It's significant, but not maybe as significant as, as Interior and EPA. Okay. Um, we are pretty much out of time, but if we have one more question coming or already lined up in the audience, we can take that, I think. And we have no further questions at this time. I'll turn it back over to you, Jim, for any additional or closing comments. Okay, thank you. Well, um, it just remains for me to thank everyone who's listened in. Thank you for joining us, uh, and thank you to Emily and Elizabeth your thoughtful answers today. Um, we will be back next month with our next virtual roundtable, so please check our website, www.energyintel.com, for details of the topic and participants, which will be posted shortly. So until then, thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.